Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 273, your copyright questions answered, an interview with Katherine Goldman, coming to you on Thursday, November 11th, 2021. I just had a brilliant discussion with attorney Katherine Goldman. Wow. I asked a lot of questions that my clients have asked me. So if you're one of my clients, be sure to listen and take notes. But for all of us, wow, what an amazing episode. There are a lot of action items here. So honestly, probably all of us will need to take some notes. Uh, remember that um, in order to favorite this episode, either in your podcast app or on YouTube so that you can find it again, on the podcast app, you can usually hit a star button or a heart button, something like that. And it will uh, stay in your list of favorite episodes. Or on YouTube, you can click the thumbs up like icon. And that again, will save it to your list of favorite episodes so you can easily find it again. One thing I wanted to make sure you know, Catherine and I were speaking in October. So when she says next month's workshop, uh, she actually was talking about November. So if you're listening to this episode when it airs, then the workshop she mentions at the end of the episode is actually happening next Wednesday, November 17th. I just wanted to make sure that you knew that you knew that. So you can go to creativelawcenter.com forward slash workshops, and then you'll see the workshop labeled publishing services, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you can sign up for that uh, anytime before Wednesday, November 17th. This is an amazing episode. My mind is still blown with all the things that I learned and uh, all the things that I thought I knew that Catherine actually explained in a way that now I'm like, oh, I only sort of understood, obviously, but now I really understand. So again, take notes, favorite the episode, and here we go. Let's listen to Catherine. Today's guest is Catherine Goldman. Catherine is an intellectual property, business, and internet law attorney who helps creative professionals protect their work so they can profit from it. She has helped countless writers, artists, and creative entrepreneurs move from early stage ideas to licensing their work or optioning their books and building their businesses. She is the editor of the website creativelawcenter.com. The Creative Law Center gives innovative creatives the business and legal resources they need when making the move from artist to entrepreneur with understandable and actionable information that focuses on copyright and content protection, trademark and branding, and creative business building. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Kitty. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. You and I, we've actually kind of sort of known each other a little bit for about a year and a half or so. Yeah, we have, we have. And every time we get together, it just seems like um, we need a lot more time to finish all the things that come into our mind to talk about. <laughs> oh, but so the thing I'm so excited to have you on the show about today is um, because you are exactly the kind of attorney that people like me and my listeners need to know about. We need to know who they are, what they do, and when we need them. <laughs> You and your listeners are exactly the kind of people that I like to help. Oh, yay. Well, why don't you give us just a little bit of background on you? How did you get into this particular branch of law? And, um, and I guess just kind of tell us where you are in the world, that sort of thing. Uh, so I've always um, enjoyed working with um, creatives. And um, my I was raised with a surrounded by artists. Uh, my mother was the Dean of Admissions at the Maryland Institute College of Art for 26 years. Wow. And she always brought home artists um, to, you know, have dinner with us or um, students who couldn't get back home for Thanksgiving or, you know, so we always had um, artists in our home. My brother is an artist, my sister is an artist, um, and I got my undergraduate degree in art history. So I've always enjoyed being around um, creatives. When I got out of college, however, it's like, what am I gonna do with art history? Yeah. So law school. And that was kind of the, the, natural, the natural progression for me. Um, I spent 25 years litigating, so I was in court, I'm um, doing trial work. 
And uh, trial work is, um, uh, the only word I can think of is soul sucking. I mean, litigation is horrible um, for the litigants and for, at least for this lawyer. And so I wanted to transition out and I was doing litigation in copyright and trademark. Um, And so I wanted to transition out. And so I um, started thinking about how I could help people um, become more successful and how I could help them build their businesses and avoid litigation. And so I guess about six or seven years ago, maybe even longer now, um, I started thinking about how to transition my practice and I built the Creative Law Center and I started developing all of these uh, resources to help creatives protect their work. And then ultimately I started working with more and more writers and artists and photographers. And that was kind of the progression. Nice. Oh, that really does sound interesting. And, and hopefully your, your mom and your siblings are like, all right, that's good. She did good work over here. (laughs) Finally, finally, uh, uh, one of my mentors said when I, I um, left litigation, he said, um, you've left the dark side. <laughs> like, yeah, I have. <laughs> Thank goodness, right? <laughs> so yeah, so that's what I want to do is I like, I like helping creatives stay out of the courtroom. Oh, brilliant. That's awesome. Great. Well, listen, why don't we kind of jump into, um, I have a lot of people asking me different kinds of questions. I thought I'd just bring Mm -hmm. some of them to you. Um, The first thing I thought that we would do is just, you give us kind of the highlights, what copyright means. Like I, I feel uh, pretty confident that, that I know what it is, but you can explain it much better. Um, What does it mean? primarily for uh, writers. Um, And also, uh, as you discussed that, um, do we need to uh, take the time and file the paperwork with the copyright office for every book? And at what point, you know, I mean, short stories, I'm sure not, but then you have novelettes and novellas and that sort of thing. And I, I know that there are people who are like, well, technically I have copyright, right? So do I really have to do it? So maybe you can just like start with copyright as uh, a place to start. Yeah. (laughs) Let's do that. Let's do a little primer on copyright. All right. So first of all, copyright is not one right. It's a group of rights. It's the right to reproduce or copy your work. It's the right to perform or display your work. It's the right to distribute your work and it's the right to create derivatives of your work. So there's this whole bundle of rights. Now, the the saying that copyright subsists, exists, the moment you put your expression, your creative expression in tangible form. Right. So the minute you write something, you have copyright. And that's what everybody says. I have copyright. I just wrote this creative thing and I have copyright. Well, I call that the biggest lie in copyright. Really? And I call it that because you may have a right to that creative expression, but you can do nothing to enforce your rights. Right. Right. Okay. So you can't enforce your rights until you file for a copyright registration, all right? So I am a big advocate of filing applications on your creative work. And I have, I talk about it on, in many of my blog posts about how you can triage your work. Um, When you have a large body of work and you haven't filed applications on any of it, you know, what do you do? How do you manage it so that it's affordable and and easy to protect your work when you want to go back through a 20 or 25 year career and clean up all the things you haven't filed applications on? So I talk a lot about how to do that. Um, So why to file an application for registration is so you can enforce your rights. But the other reason, and probably the most important reason, and I can give you more, but If you are a writer 
and you've written a book or you've written some piece of creative work and somebody wants to option it to make a film or to make a series or whatever it is, or to do a podcast. If somebody wants to option your book, you have got to have it protected because optioning is when you take part of your copyright and you license it to someone so that they can make something else with it. You are licensing the derivative right, okay? So, and you need that registration so that you can protect that work um, from infringers who might be stepping on that license and so that you can police the license to make sure the person who has optioned your book doesn't go outside the bounds of the agreement. All right. So having a copyright registration is um, a best practice for building a business on your creative work. All right, that's good to know. I am one of those people who I was like, well, I'm sure no one's gonna, you know, steal my work and I'll have to sue them. I knew I would need the protection um, because I had read, you know, some of the the things that the protection gives you, uh, the that the filing gives you. But I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I'm so small right now. But now I'm like, yeah, you're right. Now I have a lot of works that I'll have to go back <laughs> and do the copyright on. So is there a length, uh, like um, like a minimum length that you're not copywriting these items or you need to put them into an anthology if they're too short or how does that work for like short stories? Oh, no, short stories are um, independently uh, can be, Oh, protected by copyright. So you can do an application for a short story. Um, it's better off. So every application comes with an application fee. And so there are a couple of strategies that you can use to um, uh, protect a group of works. And if you have a number of short stories, if they are unpublished, you can file them in a group application. You can file up to 10 in a group application. In fact, if you have a series of books that are unpublished, you can file up to 10 books on a single application. Oh. The minute a work is published though, you have to, um, it gets its own application with the date of publication determines whether it needs its own application. Right. Okay. And so basically it's, it's a matter of saving 35 or $45 times X if you do it before the publication. Right. So the single application I think is $35. The standard application is now $55. Oh. So if you are going to um, file an application on a group of unpublished short stories, it's going to be $55. Okay. Now, if you are, um, if you want to protect like blog posts, the Copyright Office just came out with a new application so that you can file for protection on blog posts, Facebook posts, Instagram captions. And I think that you can do up to 50 um, posts at a time. I'd have to check that. But there is a new application for what are called short online literary works. So that's great because that that was a big hole in the copyright protection scheme. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you said that about the social media posts, because I was just talking to somebody um, last week or this week who said, I can't believe I posted this really interesting thought in a Facebook post. And um, she's like, it was the first time I'd really thought about it. And I, and I just posted it and I didn't I hadn't had time to think about it more and decide what I wanted to do with that thought. And did I want to create a blog post out of it and that sort of thing? She said, mm -hmm. and then the next day I saw somebody had taken the key parts of my Facebook post and posted it themselves as if they said it. She's like, that was my work. That, that's my idea. I don't want somebody to steal what I'm going to do with the idea. And I'm like, Right. And that's Facebook. I'm thinking, okay, never put anything good or interesting on Facebook, but. Well, yeah, that's been pretty consistent about Facebook. <laughs> it's nothing good or interesting on it. In my view, I'll take that back. I have lots of good friends who post interesting things, but, but let's talk about the idea issue. Yeah. So copyright does not protect an idea. All right. It protects the creative expression of that idea. 
So, I mean, for instance, um, if, you know, if someone paints a tree, um, they can't, then they can file a copyright um, application on their painting of a tree, but they can't keep other people from painting trees, right? They can only keep people from painting trees um, to the extent their painting is creative and original. All right. So if the idea in the Facebook post um, was not fleshed out, all right, let's say, I mean, I'm not saying that if it was a 50 word post or a hundred word post, there might have been sufficient creativity in there for it to be protected by copyright. But if the person who took the idea fleshed it out and um, turned the idea um, into their own creative expression, that's not going to be considered an infringement. So the person who originally posted the idea on um, Facebook may have inspired this other person um, to do something new and creative. So ideas aren't protected. The creative expression is protected. And neither is the person who originally posted it, it prevented from exploring the idea further and really developing it into a creative original work. Right. Okay. And so when it comes to um, the legal aspect, not the, you know, moral aspect of, I think that you should have said, I, I saw this post from, you know, Jody yesterday, <laughs> um, but from a legal perspective, then um, where is the line between um, when you do need to uh, give credit or get permission when you're um, using somebody else's work, like as a as a way to maybe explain an an item in your work? So it may be an actual quote from a book, or it may be just. Um, like something you learned in a webinar, but you know, some, a lot of people they're putting webinars together where this is their particular method. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking, I don't think that you, well, I know that you shouldn't take somebody else's method and teach it yourself and not say this is Joe's method, but mm -hmm. um, legally where, where's the places where you um, need to give credit to the, the first person that you heard about it from? Okay. So credit is not a concept that is recognized in copyright law. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so if you need permission, you need permission. And giving credit is not going to negate the fact that you needed permission. Ah, okay. okay. So who Our, do you need permission from? So, so then the question becomes, how much of someone else's work are you using? right? Yeah. And it's, it's a fair use analysis. Are you making fair use of someone else's creative work? And that has to, it's a four-part analysis. And essentially, the, the first part of the analysis is um, how much of the work are you taking, okay? Are you taking just enough to make your point and not more? Are you taking the heart and soul of the work? Um, in which case you're taking too much of it, okay? Is the work that you're taking, is it highly creative and protectable? Because if it's not, again, if it's just the idea, if it's just the concept, um, then it could very well be fair use. Mm -hmm. Is your taking and using this work, is it, undermining the market for their work? Are you taking their customers by taking their work? And finally, have you transformed what they have done into something new and different? Okay, so that is roughly a fair use analysis. And there is a, a wonderful website, um, the Center for Social Media at American University has these really accessible guides for creatives to help them do a fair use analysis when they want to use someone else's work. They have, a, um, we're talking like these are pamphlets that are, you know, four and five pages long, 
really easy to go through step-by-step. Um, can I use this person's work? Here's the analysis. They have one for poetry. They have one for the visual arts. They have one for documentary filmmaking. They have just this whole variety of guides so that creatives can make the determination for themselves. And once you go through the analysis, um, then you're in, you've acted in good faith, right? And then, but then you will know for yourself whether you can use it or whether you have to ask permission. Okay. And you can do all of this. I mean, assuming you're halfway intelligent and you're trying to follow the guidelines, you can do this without um, having to ask an attorney for help. Uh, basically, without having to hire someone, you can do it yourself. Right. Yes. That it, it is a first step. It is an absolute first step. Now, there are times when you're going to want um, a legal analysis and perhaps even a written opinion letter when it comes to fair use. For instance, if you're working with a publisher and the publisher, if you sign a publishing contract, that publishing contract says that um, you warrant and represent that you have the right to use everything that's going to be published. And if it turns out the publisher gets sued for infringement, you're going to have to indemnify them, right? Right. So there may be a time when you would want um, a clearance opinion on your work so that you can, you can um, initiate the work by doing the analysis yourself, right? That's good faith. But if it's getting to the point where you are licensing the work, you very well might want a clearance opinion. And if it gets to that point, you can also use a clearance opinion um, to secure uh, insurance to protect you from infringement claims. Uh -huh. So there are times when you do want a professional opinion, but the idea of these um, fair use guides is to allow art to be created. Artists and writers shouldn't have to come to an attorney before they create their art, before they create their work. So these are tools they can use to give them confidence that they are using other people's creative work fairly. Okay. Now you have um, a, a full article just on, on this, I think, on your blog, right? Yeah, I do. I do okay. have a fair use article. Yes. Okay. So we'll send people to that. Is it possible to answer the question in general, uh, having to do with um, quoting song lyrics or poetry like I, I in general just tell myself don't just don't quote song lyrics just a better idea not to do it and for poetry I you know if it's you know um what is the name of that like 200 page poem <laughs> um can't think I of know, it. whichever one it is <laughs> yeah yeah um versus versus um like quoting all or a portion of a short po poem like that's a lot of the poem so i've told my clients i don't know but i would not quote half of a short poem that just seems like a bad idea right so that goes back to what i was saying about how much of the work are you taking so I don't know, Ozymandias, I don't know what poem you're thinking of, but if there is a 200 page ode out there and you're taking you know, three stanzas, you're not taking the heart and soul of the work, okay? You're not replacing um, the market for the work, okay? So your analysis is pretty solid. A short poem, or song lyrics, by their very nature, they're, they're short, right? And if you're taking a meaningful lyric, the chances are you are taking the heart and soul of the song. So song lyrics, um, I do not recommend that you use song lyrics in your writing. You can use the title of the song. You can use the name of the band or the singer. You can um, in, invoke a scene where you're at a concert and the song comes on, um, but you, you shouldn't use the lyrics. Now there is some uh, legal uh, support for the notion that it can be fair use, but I don't want my clients to be the test case. Right, yeah, yeah. 
So if somebody's singing bye-bye Miss American Pie in the shower, just don't put it in quotation marks. Don't don't write the lyrics. Just they're singing an uh, right. American Pie by so-and-so in the shower. Exactly. Exactly. And everybody, it's going to be in our head, yeah. right? We're, we're going to know. I mean, I automatically, <laughs> so whenever that song comes on, you know, I crank it up, not yeah. singing at the top of my lungs and I still don't know all the words, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, so, and that's all you need to do with these really well-known songs. Now, there, there is a way to license lyrics for your books. Um, it's very expensive. It's very expensive. So, and you have to have a different license for the print book than you do for the audio book. Oh. And, and you, in the audio book, you cannot sing the song you may only say the lyrics in the audiobook unless you have yet a different license wow okay good to know mm-hmm. i'll have to talk to you later i'll i'll have to get on your um on your client roster and uh, <laughs> ask you a question about somebody who actually gave me permission verbally in a in a podcast to use lyrics from a very popular song and i'm thinking i'm i i should get this in writing just to cover both of us but yeah, I'm so long as he's the rights holder, then as long as he's the rights holder. And, you know, again, if you have it on video um, that you can feel fairly confident and then you just circle back around with an email and yeah. say, OK, I'm doing it. Were you serious? <laughs> and he writes back. He's like, sure. Yeah, that's all you need. Oh, good, good. That's good to know. All right. Mm-hmm. Now I've had um, other people talk to me. Um, one person, she used to be a teacher, um, community college mostly, I think. Um, and then she did a lot of speaking. Um, I think she's done some coaching and now she's creating some um, workbooks that are um, you know, educational in nature. But um, in addition to uh, wanting to quote possibly more of poems than uh, than is allowed. Now, some of the things that she wanted to quote, um, I believe is in public domain. And I think so long as I can show that it's in public domain, then then we can say, okay, that, that's all right, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so let me give a little tip here on determining public domain works. Um, Cornell University or the law school has a great tool on how to determine whether a work is in the public domain. It's a perfect chart. I use it all the time and it just walks you right through it. And you, again, you're acting in good faith. You're, this is a way for writers to clear the work themselves, right? So Cornell University, Cornell Law School, um, public domain chart. I send people there all the time. Wonderful. And everybody, I will find it and put a link to it in the show notes so that you don't have to do a search. (laughs) Um, So from what I remember when I was teaching at college, um, there are a lot of things that I can do in the classroom that have to do with um, photocopying copyrighted works and using it to teach. Um, But my friend who used to be a teacher wanted to apply the same rule to her workbook. And I was like, I don't think you can do that. So for instance, there was a painting from, I think, 1650, 1750, something like that. So like, on the one hand, it's like uh, from from a time period, it's in the public domain, but I don't know if anybody actually still owns a, a copyright on this work. She wanted to take a JPEG of the painting, put it in the workbook because she was using it as an example of blah, 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 like a teaching example. Do okay. you have any idea how we would clear that sort of question? Um, yeah, so that's pretty straightforward as long as it's in the U.S., Okay. Okay. So you have a painting that is in the public domain by age, right? Yeah. And so someone has taken a photograph of that painting and it's um, suitable for printing. The photograph is, so it's sufficiently high resolution. I mean, it was taken uh, under, you know, conditions that make it suitable for printing. So the rule in the United States is that photographic photos of two-dimensional works that are in the public domain are not protected by copyright. Okay. And so 
I have a, I have a post on this. <laughs> um, and it is, um, let's see, it is, let's see what I, it is um, museums that are giving away high resolution images of their public domain work. And it's a whole list of the museums um, and it's called the Open Access Project. And I, I link to and explain how their, um, how their catalogs are made available. And you can go and download those images and you can use them for whatever you want. And you can put them in your workbook and you can sell your workbook and you can do whatever you want because the law in the United States is that those photographs do not have their own independent copyright. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Now, so we're not talking about paintings that are currently hanging in Amsterdam or London or Paris. We're talking about the US. Yeah, yeah not necessarily. Now, so there is a group of museums in Paris that has um, opened their catalog to open access. There, I think there's one in Amsterdam. There's a museum in Amsterdam. I've got them listed um, on my blog. All right. Um, and so there are a few international museums, um, but nothing, the British Museum, for instance, no. Um, you know, and so you've got to take a look at um, what their policies are, what their terms of service are on their website, you know? Yeah. So let's just say, uh, I can't remember the example that she was using in the teaching, but let's say she was teaching something about uh, writing fantasy that seems also realistic. And she was using a painting that seems to be a rural scene until you notice that like some of these animals have wings, like mammals with wings. So, you know, obviously not a painting of, of, um, of an actual scene. So let's say she finds that um, she can't prove that she can use that painting, um, but she really is just trying to explain uh, how you can make a, a book or a story be realistic with these fantastical elements, but still make it feel like it could be happening in my city, this story could be happening here. Then um, I'm thinking then what she needs to do then is um, go to these other sites and just see if she can find a different painting. Right. Exactly. I mean, we're talking about the Met, right? We're talking about the Cleveland Museum of Art. We are talking about massive collections that are just available. Here in Baltimore, the Walters Art Gallery has an open access program. Wow. And, and, and well, Los Angeles um, County Museum is on with an open access program. I mean, there is just a massive amount available that it's not necessary to use something in that particular instance um, as an example that's protected by copyright. Go find something that, that is in the public domain. Wow, you are making this feel so much easier than it feels when you're actually sitting in front of your computer alone. <laughs> right, and that, and that is the goal, right? The goal is to empower creatives to create. It's easy. Don't be afraid of this. There are ways to do it so that you can feel confident with what you're creating. And that's, that's, that is my whole philosophy. I love it. You, you really do make it just seem easy, which I'm loving a lot right now. I, if, if I were any closer or if I just felt like flying to Baltimore, I would just go and hug you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, you have to come to Baltimore. Wait for spring though, because yeah. winter's coming. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, I have a friend in Baltimore, so um, I see two people at once. And then I'm sure there's some really interesting food in Baltimore that I've never eaten. I, 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 uh, I'm not a foodie. That, that would suggest that I actually know how to cook food or that I can at least <laughs> tell, oh, this has um, cumin and, uh, you know, when I'm eating other people. No, I, I don't know. All I know is I love food. Uh, and I'm one of those people who, when I go to a new city, I want to know, like, what's the food that people eat here? I want to eat it. <laughs> Crab cakes and soft shell crabs. That's what we got. Oh, all right. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, I'll take you to lunch. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
Well, um, I do have a few more questions if you don't feel like I'm taking advantage of you here. Oh, no, no, let's go. Fantastic. Well, listen, um, I'm on several Facebook groups of uh, professional meaning, you know, we're, we're publishing and making money and, and uh, have a business, professional writers who sometimes are oddly out of the blue after two books or 10 books or 30 books, Amazon sends them an email. We need proof that this really is, um, you, that you really are the rights holder to this work before we will let you hit the publish button. Do you know what is happening or it doesn't really matter why, as long as you can tell us what do we do? What do we use for the proof? Um, the copyright registration. Okay. Mm, right. Right. There's, there's if I had done that, reason. then I just, I just email it to them. You just email it to them. And I would also um, email the, um, the application right? So you have the registration, you have the application, and you have the deposit copy, right? So you can show them the whole thread that uh, of ownership. Now, I recommend that um, you apply for copyright registration on your work three months after you publish it within that three month period. Okay. Now, if you're getting dinged by Amazon before you can even publish, that would change the workflow, okay? And then you're going to want to apply for registration before publication. You will not get the certificate of registration for, it can be four, five, six months. Okay. And, with COVID, and with COVID, it's been a real problem. Right. So all you will have is the um, confirmation of receipt of application, confirmation of receipt of the deposit copy. And if you haven't gotten the certificate, but it's in their database, the Copyright Office database, screenshot it. And those are the things that you can send to Amazon. Okay. All right. So we're back to really, Kitty, you need to copyright your work. <laughs> just in case anybody. So it could be that Amazon wants to make sure that you're really the rights holder before you uh, publish something. It may mm -hmm. be that, um, you know, um, Joe, the producer is like, that could make something really interesting. And I would like to option your work. Uh, mm -hmm. Either way, you need to have some sort of um, legally binding proof. 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 Yeah. So let me give you two more reasons. Um, okay. So, um, you and I um, were in a business development program together and one of our colleagues there has published her book and she is constantly getting ripped off, constantly, okay? It's yeah. a business book and it's really well done. Um, and so we have to do takedown notices on Google. Right. And Google wants that copyright registration number. Oh, in order to do that. I did not know you needed it for that too. You don't need it, but it's much more effective if you have it. The same is true with Facebook. If you're doing a takedown on Facebook or uh, Pinterest for visual art or Twitter, if you have that copyright registration, you have the power to shut down those infringers, okay? Right. So that's another reason. Again, that's an enforcement reason. And another enforcement reason is coming online, maybe at the end of this year, I don't know what the, what the schedule is, but in the next um, um, two to six months is the Copyright Claims Board. And the Copyright Claims Board is a small claims court for copyright infringement. Wow. So it's no longer going to have to be federal litigation that costs tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Okay. So now individual authors can enforce their rights in a small claims tribunal, but only if they have that registration in their hand. Okay. Well, now that becomes even more like you just keep giving me good ideas to do the work that I need to do. 
good reasons, I mean. Um, now, can I just back up for one, one step? You said that um, you normally suggest that people file three months after they've published. So mm -hmm. I'm willing to just put that on my calendar, but can you give us like just the short reason why? Right, because in that three month period, it's a grace period, basically. And so if you get the copyright registration uh, filed in that three month period and say somebody infringes you before you get it filed, Okay. Uh -huh. Before you get it filed, you're still entitled to all of the remedies as though you had filed before the infringement. Oh. All right. But if you file a year later or two years later and someone has infringed you before you get it filed, you'll lose your right to certain remedies. And the, the two remedies that you lose if you don't have a timely filed application, you lose the right to recover your attorney's fees and you lose the right to statutory damages. And that means that you end up having to prove um, lost profits, which is very difficult to do. Yeah. So, and having those rights, statutory damages and the right to recover attorney's fees um, can really uh, result in a, a quick resolution of, of the infringement because nobody wants to pay attorney's fees, right? Yeah. So, so that's, that's the explanation of that three month period. Thank you. I actually thought those two things were the main reasons why I would file for copyright. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm like, I'm small, nobody's going to, you know, I'm not going to sue anybody. So I won't worry about it, knowing that those were the two things that I would, um, that I would lose, but I didn't realize there were so many other good reasons to have filed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Sure. All right. Still on that filing, um, does, uh, so your print book and ebook is considered uh, one work. Is your audio book considered a separate work that needs a separate copyright? Yes. Okay. Yes, because there it's a, it's a, it's a production. Right. Okay. So there are separate rights that attach to that, right? And the copyright um, is with the, um, the producer. So typically the audiobook narrator is also the producer. So they have the copyright in the production, even though you have the copyright in the underlying work. So you want to make sure that the contract that you sign with the audiobook uh, narrator transfers that copyright over to you. Okay. And that's probably something that if it hasn't been done, which hasn't been done with my narrator and me, uh, then we, we probably need to um, find just some um, small, uh, what am I trying to say? There's probably some sort of quick, easy agreement that we can both sign and transfer. Copyright transfer agreement. That's right. Wow. You make everything sound so easy, Catherine. You're also increasing my to-do list by a lot, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the deal, Kitty. Now going forward, Okay, put it into your workflow. Yes. All right, start going forward, fixing these things with your next book, right? Get it into your workflow and then go back and start cleaning it up. Yeah, yeah, all right, that's a good idea. So let's just say, I'm working on a new new book, uh, it's National Novel Writing Month uh, in a couple of days as of the time that you and I are talking. Um, so, so within the workflow of that book, um, I am actually going to wait until after publication, but before three months after publication and mm -hmm. file for copyright. That will cover the print book, both in paperback and hardcover and the ebook. Mm -hmm. And yes, then yes, because let me just let me clarify that. So the copyright registration covers the content, not the form. Right. Okay. All right. And because the content is the written word, then mm -hmm. it's just the one item. It's right. when it becomes the, the spoken word in the audiobook that it becomes a separate item. That's correct. Okay. And then again, do I wait up and file for copyright within three months of that? Mm -hmm. uh, let's see, not, not necessarily the production of it, but the date that uh, we publish it? It's the date of publication. It's within three months of the date of publication. Now, again, if, if Amazon is starting to jump on people for proof of ownership, then you, you might want to adjust that and, and file your application before publication because you know if Amazon's asking for proof, that's gonna be your proof is the application. Right, 
And so now you're just making me think, sorry, all these ideas and thoughts are coming into my head. And I hope that it's like super helpful for like a whole bunch of people going, oh, that one's helpful for me. So um, one of the things that you know that we do is uh, sometimes we'll write um, uh, three books in a series or a trilogy if it's only mm-hmm. going to be three books. And we want to um, publish them with three months in a row. So we get mm-hmm. them all written and then then we start publishing. At that point, because it's three books, um, does it, aside from, you know, saving $35 times two, is there Mm -hmm. any reason why we would have wanted to fill out the application that is the copyright of multiple works for one application fee before we publish? Or are we still going to want to do the copyright application for each individual book after publication, but before the three-month mark? That's right. So that's the standard practice, right? But if you've got all of those manuscripts ready, I would just, I would go with um, a group of unpublished works. I would just go with a group of unpublished works now and on one application. Now, having said that, I will tell you that if you're um, infringed, let's say someone infringes you know, book one and two, and they're on the same application on the same registration, you would only be entitled to one recovery. Uh, right. I see. So if you have um, three um, registrations and books one and two are infringed, you'd be entitled to recoveries for each. Right. So, but again, federal infringement, copyright infringement litigation is not the main reason to get a registration, but you should be aware that if you bundle them, you're limiting your remedies. Right. Okay. (laughs) And because I'm a little embarrassed by how much I don't know, but you're an attorney and I'm not still (laughs) as a business person, I am slightly embarrassed because the main reasons that, that we want to file this copyright paperwork, just tell us again, are well, in my view, the main reason that a, um, a writer wants copyright registration on their work is because they want to generate multiple revenue streams by licensing their work, optioning their work, people who will come to them and say, I want to turn your book into a movie. I want to turn your book into a series. And you have everything zipped up and ready to go because that's the idea. Right. Yeah. All right. That totally makes sense. I love the way you think. (laughs) Anytime I hear someone talking about multiple streams of income from writing, I'm like, I love you. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know we probably should wrap it up. I'm wondering if I should have you come back. The the last question that I've been asked, it has to do with, um, memoir and the fact that uh, you're talking about real people. Do you, do you have, and you probably have a blog post that I can also link to in the show notes. So I'll ask you for that and and then we'll, uh, or I'll find it and we'll put that in the show notes, but do you have kind of like a short ish answer for people who are like, I want to write a memoir, but what if someone, uh, you know, what if one of these real people decides to sue me for what I said? Yeah. So that is a much longer answer. And, um, I not only is it, it's not a blog post, I have a whole workshop on, on memoir and how to reduce risk um, in when you're writing a memoir and in the workshop, two of my clients talk about their, the choices they made when writing their memoirs and whether they were going to name names, not name names, whether they were going to use their own name as author, you know, and we go through all of the decisions that need to be made um, and why you'd want to do it one way as opposed to another way. Um, And so that's a whole workshop that is on the creativelawcenter.com. That's awesome. Terrific. Well, that's actually a great segue. Catherine, tell us again, where can people find you online and also help us to know, uh, like people are listening from all over the world. So who should feel uh, confident that they can go ahead and contact you or use your website? Is there anyone that um, is in an area where you're like my website, uh, what the things that I say on it, you know, may not apply to where you are. Can you uh, just kind of give us that wrap up of you online? Sure, sure. So 
Um, my um, law license is issued by the state of Maryland in the United States of America. So I am admitted in Maryland and this is where I practice law. However, copyright law and trademark law are federal, they're US federal law. So I am able to represent um, people all over the country uh, with respect to copyright and trademark issues. I am also able to represent um, foreign entities and individuals if, if the work um, has to do with US copyright law and US trademark law. So I have clients in many other countries and I help them with their trademarks and I help them with their copyrights. So um, the, the website creativelawcenter.com is accessible um, to, of course, everyone in the world, but it mostly deals with U.S. law. There are some um, posts coming up that are going to talk about the differences in U.S. law, for instance, with work for hire um, is a U.S. law concept that's different in different countries. So I'm, I'm going to be talking about that fair use is a U.S. law concept. So people who are taking a look at the, at the website can get some general concepts, some general principles, but understanding that I am a U.S. attorney. Okay. So if they live in another country for the, the copies of their books that are sold in the U.S. market, that's what you could help them with if there was an issue here. Correct. Okay. Wow, Catherine, thank you so much. This is a lot of great information and obviously your website is full of resources. So again, I will make sure that uh, everything that we talked about is in the show notes. And thank you. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. It was so helpful. Well, if I could just give a parting tip, I want to encourage everyone to file copyright registrations on their work. Um, I do have on my uh, website, I have a membership program that I offer for creatives um, and you can join it and your monthly fees accrue uh, to private services with me. You get one-on-one -on -one time with me. Uh, this is my way of trying to make legal services available and affordable for creatives. Next month's workshop is going to be on publishing services, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So come on over to thecreativelawcenter.com and, and check it out.